Well, it's great uh, to be back here on this beautiful weekend. Is this not something else? This weather we've got going. I say let's keep this going until spring at least, right? This is amazing. I love it. And uh, it's good to be here in this series. We're in this new series called Parables. And as we take a look at various parables, especially this one today, uh, there was a question that came to my mind I think we all probably can consider and relate to. Have you ever had a time in your life where you had a decision to make? And so you looked at, you know, all the, you know, available options, the angles to this whole deal. And then you finally made your call. You made your decision. It looked like a really good decision. And then once you embraced that decision and lived out that decision, it turned out to be the exact opposite. You ever had that? I think if we're honest... We all have. We all have. For me, I could share story after story, but one uh, that I could relate to would be my decision to go downhill skiing. Like, it looked good, right? The reality is, from the time I came out of the womb to my mid-20s, I saw no purpose in the sport. I thought it was worthless. Why would anyone want to do this? I mean, think about this. Why would you choose to go out in the cold for an entire day, you know, strap some sticks to your feet and cascade down a mountainside? Why would you do that? Why would anyone do that to themselves? So I saw no purpose in the sport. But in my mid-20s, I had this friend of mine who was a really good skier. And they had skied competitively. They knew it backwards and forwards. They said, Phil, will you go skiing with me? I'm like, well, I I don't really want to. I have no interest. Never wanted to do that. I, I, I really don't want to do that. They said, Phil, you don't know what you're missing. I mean, skiing is so much fun you got to do it. And I said, well, it might be fun, but the reality is I've looked at this like on the Olympics and everything. It looks really, really difficult. It really does. I don't want to do it. And they said, Phil, come on now. It's fun. And the reality is it's easy. Anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. All you just got to do is lean. It's just not that difficult. Come on, try it. And so I found myself with my friend on that particular day going up to this resort in northern Michigan. We got out of the car and we walked into the lodge. They fitted me for my right, you know, size, you know, boots and everything. And then they, you know, carefully selected the right skis for me in order to capitalize on my, you know, skiing potential, right? And then, of course, I looked around and I saw that I'm wearing jeans Everyone else, of course, they've got snow pants on, ski pants, water-repellent pants. I thought, is this the problem that I'm the only one with jeans? I said, oh, no, it's easy. You won't fall. You know, it's just not going to be that big of a deal. And so I, I went outside, and I went to the rope toe. I don't know if you ever tried one of these things before, but as I saw people on the rope toe, I thought my biggest problem might be getting down the hill without falling. I saw one person after another falling while they're going up the hill, and so I thought, that is not going to happen to me. And so I, I, you know, grabbed a hold of that rope, and I tell you what, there were a few times I thought I was going to fall. My legs began to spread apart, but I, I held on. I got to the top of the hill, and it was then that I was told that this was a green run. This is the easiest of all the runs that there are. It's, it's just not that that hard. You're, you're going to be fine. And and so I launched. I went from my first run. I got about 25 feet. I fell flat on my face. And I thought, well, that's a fluke, you know, because it's easy. Anyone can do this. I just must have done something wrong. So I got back up, picked myself up, went another 25 feet flat on my face. In fact, I did that over and over and over again until I got to the bottom of the hill 
where I had the wonderful opportunity to ride that rope toe up to the top yet one more time. And so I did that, got to the top. I went down the hill again, fell. I fell. I fell over and over and over again. In fact, my jeans were soaking wet. I couldn't feel my legs any longer. And I'll tell you what, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was when I was going down, I hit this like this hill that was there, little little hill there. I lost my balance. I fell down on the ground. And right afterwards, there was a ski school of little kids that saw the hill and used it for a jump. And they jumped over me one after another. And I thought, this is humiliating. I am never doing this again. This is a worthless sport. I went inside, took up my skis, my boots, and vowed never to do that again. What a horrible decision. So what do you do with a friend who talks you into this? Sells you on the idea. Makes it sound easier than it is. I mean, what do you do with that kind of a friend? Well, I don't know what you'd do with yours, but I married mine. And... Uh, and the reality is we've gone skiing several times over, and now I love the sport, okay? I love the sport. In fact, I'm trying to talk her into going out west. I want to go out west skiing because at first I was sold on this idea. It's easy that anyone can do it, but what I realized over time is it takes a lot of determination, a lot of dedication to do this well, and I've just grown to love it once I knew what I got myself into. So let me ask you this. Have we done this with Christianity? When it comes to dealing with those people who are outside the faith, have we tried to make it sound easy to them? You know, it's easy. Anyone can do it. All you got to do is just believe in God. And you're in. You're a Christian, you know. All you got to do is say this little tiny prayer and you're in. I mean, have we, have we kind of sold it many times to be much easier than it is? And I would say that in Christianity across our country and probably across the world, we have done this. We have done this. And, and some people, of course, who prayed that little prayer and, and then began to embrace this journey realized, oh, man, this is a lot. there's a lot more to this than what I had thought. As a result, some keep going and some turn away. And this brings us to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there with me to Luke chapter 14 because it's here that, that Jesus has all these people following him. And it's here that he teaches a couple parables in order to make his point. Now, why did Jesus teach parables? Well, for a couple different reasons. First of all, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that one way you could recognize the Messiah when he showed up was that he would teach in parables. Another reason that Jesus taught in parables was really to sift people, if you will. So you could identify who was really a true follower from those who weren't. And so sometimes these parables, they got downright uncomfortable. As people began to understand, as they heard, oh, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what it means to be a follower. And this is what happened here in Luke chapter 14. In fact, the Bible tells us in verse 25 of Luke 14, it says this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Now, if you look at the context of this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. They're on a physical journey to Jerusalem. But as they're on this physical journey, they're also on a spiritual journey as well even if they didn't know it. You see, Jesus, as he walked with these large crowds, he knew that some had beliefs about him, but they didn't believe in him. Some in that crowd that day had doubts about Jesus, but still, they walked with him. Some had concerns about Jesus, they really did, but on the other side of the coin, they were kind of fascinated with him. And then, there were those who were true followers. Now, we have a large group here today. What group do you think you fall into, though? 
Do you think that you're, you're someone who you know, believes certain things about Jesus, but have you really believed him? Do you fall into the group and say, you know, I got doubts about him. I'm still kind of fascinated, still trying to learn more. Or are you actually in? Are you following him? Are you a devoted follower? I mean, where do you fall into this? Because this is what Jesus was looking at. In fact, if you were outside the crowd that day looking in, there's no way you could tell one person from the other. So Jesus, as he's traveling with them, he knows that he's got all these people filled with mixed motives, mixed passions, mixed devotions. And so Jesus wanted them to understand what the real deal was. He wanted them to understand the the true and the full implications of becoming a disciple of his, which meant to become just like him. And so as he began walking with this large crowd to Jerusalem, he starts to let them know the difference between discipleship of the past and discipleship of the present and the future. You see, for the Jewish people back then, before Christ showed up, there was a way that discipleship worked. I mean, if you were a Jew and you lived in those days, you would look at all the various rabbis that were teaching. And you would listen to them one after another. And eventually, you'd say, well, I like that person's teaching more than anyone else. And so then, what you would do is you'd make your choice. And this leads to the first point. A disciple chose what rabbi he wanted to follow in order to embrace his message. You like what your message was? You'd walk up to your rabbi and say, well, you know what? Can I follow you? And then you'd begin to follow that rabbi in order to embrace his message, what he taught. A disciple back then attached himself to his rabbi to acquire knowledge and skills. It was all about increasing this up here. And thirdly, before the time of Christ, the disciple's loyalty was to the Torah and tradition, not necessarily to his rabbi. Well, he loved his rabbi. He was really devoted to the Torah and even more so even Jewish tradition. But then Jesus showed up. He presented a new type of discipleship. And in his type of discipleship, a disciple is called by the rabbi. You don't choose the rabbi. The rabbi chooses you. A disciple is called by the rabbi to both follow and embrace his mission. It's more than what he's teaching. It's it's everything he's about. You're embracing everything that he's about. You embrace his mission. Secondly, a disciple binds himself to his rabbi to acquire Christ-likeness. It's not about, you know, acquiring more knowledge. It's about acquiring more of him and embracing him to be like him. And thirdly, a disciple's loyalty is to Jesus as Lord, not to any tradition. In fact, Jesus would say, you know, cast aside the traditions of men and embrace me. It's all about a relationship with me. So Jesus was trying to let the people, these large crowds, know that discipleship is not about casual attachment or acquaintances. It's about being all in, becoming just like Jesus. And so as he's traveling with these large crowds, he then speaks these words to them. And these words have been confused many over time. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Powerful words. The first lesson is this. Discipleship impacts my personal relationships. It impacts my personal relationships. Jesus says, you can't follow me unless you hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brothers. And a lot of people have looked at this and says, wait a second here. Is is this the same Jesus? The same one that said, love your neighbor as yourself? Is this the same Jesus that said, honor your father and your mother? I mean, how can I honor my father and my mother while I'm hating them? How does that work? 
Is this the same Jesus that said, anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death? Did you know that Jesus said that? Is this the same Jesus? We have to realize, of course, back then, hating one's own family was a violation of the law. And since Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law, certainly he had something different in mind when it came to this word hate. He he, he, he identified it differently than what we do. And so what did Jesus mean when he said you got to hate your family? What was he talking about? Well, in order to understand this, we've got to take a look at another section of Scripture. Genesis, this would be one example, Genesis chapter 29. And here we're introduced to a guy by the name of Jacob. There's a whole story about him I'm not going to go into. But I will tell you this, Jacob had two wives. Now that's a daring man to have two wives, but to increase the dare, if you will, these wives were actually sisters. That's pretty complex. And so now Jacob has two wives who are sisters. And the Bible tells us this, and really take in these words so you understand where we're going here. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Capture that. His love for Rachel, one sister, was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban, that's the father, another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Now, within that, that passage itself, it seems like it contradicts itself. Take a look again. It says at the beginning, remember, that his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. So he just merely loved one person more than the other. We do that all the time. You know, I might say, and I do, I love you, but I don't love you as much as I love my wife. We've got that going all the time. And then it says, you know, this, that the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. Well, wait a second. Not loved... That can't fit the context, can it? Because the idea here is that he loved one more than the other. Now, in the Hebrew, if you're going to take this to even a greater depth here, it actually can be interpreted this way, verse 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, not loved, or hated, he he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So clearly, Jacob didn't hate his wife. He had many sons with his wife. It clearly says he loved one more than the other. And that means that the other who was loved less was not loved or hated even though she was still loved. Just less so. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying we are to love our family. In fact, God designed the family. He made the family. We are to love our family members. But what Jesus is saying here is this, that that you have to love him more than your family. You have to. Because the reality is this, if you don't love Christ more than you love your family members, when you read the Bible and Jesus says, well, this is what you must do, and then you look at your family member that you love more and says, well, you don't got to do that, that's nuts, that's crazy, then you're going to go down the wrong path rather than embrace Christ. I've seen this over time in dating relationships where you have a Christian who's dating somebody who's really not. And suddenly, what Christ has to say isn't so valid anymore because they love that person more than they love Jesus. And Christ is saying, this can't be. You cannot love any of your family members more than you love me because otherwise you're not going to be faithful to me. Anyone who loves your family members more than me, he says, cannot be my disciple. Cannot be, he says. The idea here is that I must love no one more than I love Jesus. Is that statement true for you? I must love no one more than I love Jesus. Do you love Jesus that much? Because I think in reality, many times if we're honest as Christians, we'll say we love Jesus. 
but we love him just a little bit less than we love this or that or this person or that person. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you got to flip that around. you got to love me more. So is Jesus central to you or just one of the other things and people that you love? He says, if that's the case, you cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. And then he adds this. It's getting pretty in-depth here. He says, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So first, Jesus taught us that discipleship impacts my personal relationships. And now he's saying discipleship impacts my personal preferences. My personal preferences. He talks here about the idea that we have to carry the cross on our backs. That's what he's talking about. So what's he saying here? Of course, crucifixion back then was very, very common. And you've got to keep in mind that Jesus now is traveling to Jerusalem. That's what the context tells us. And so perhaps he brings up this idea of crucifixion to those people in the crowd because he's making them aware of what they're going to see once they get there. Because in Jerusalem, very common that alongside the road where you'd be walking would be one person after another who was crucified. And unlike many times we tend to think that they were crucified on a cross and they're way up high and we're looking at them up here. No, no, no. They were crucified at eye level. Their feet were just a couple inches off the ground. And the idea here would be that you then could walk up to these people who are being crucified, look them in the eyes, spit in their face, and mock them. This was the culture, the Roman culture of that day. Horrific. And so then, what does this have to do with our preferences? One blogger wrote this, and I, wanna, I want you to read this and take it in because he gets to the heart of the matter. He says, when the Roman Empire crucified a criminal, the victim was often forced to carry his cross part of the way to the crucifixion site. Carrying his cross through the heart of the city was intended to be an open admission that the Roman Empire was correct in the sentence of death imposed on him, an admission that Rome was right and that he was wrong. So when Jesus encouraged his followers to carry their crosses and follow him, he was referring to a public display before others that Jesus was right in all that he stated, which is why the disciples were following him to their deaths. Jesus is right in everything. I love him more than anyone. What he says is valid for me. I'm going to stake my life on what he says. In fact, Jesus was telling the crowd that day as he's telling us that as the chief cross bearer, He had to die to any sense of independence. He had to die to all of his preferences in order to complete his father's will. Because if you stop to think about it, don't you think Jesus would have had many other preferences than doing that? Don't you think he would have preferred to avoid being tempted by Satan when he began his ministry? I think so. It's pretty difficult. I think Jesus would have preferred to avoid facing rejection by his own hometown people. They kind of threw him out. I think Jesus would have preferred to avoid having the crowds constantly pressed in against him, the Bible says. You can't even get any time for yourself. I think Jesus would have preferred to avoid facing ridicule from the religious leaders or dealing with the pride and arrogance within his own disciples. And I think Jesus would have preferred to avoid dealing with Peter's over-the-top statements and performances. I mean, he really got under everyone's skin. But then there's the garden. And it's here that Jesus makes his preference known. He says, Father, if there's any other way, I prefer it. Please, I prefer it. Is there any other way? And Jesus in that moment had to die to his preferences in order to embrace his Father's will so that we could be redeemed and we could know life because he died in our place. 
So let me ask you about your preferences. What he's saying is we've got to die to our preferences. Are you dying to yours? Am I dying to mine? It's a fair question because we live in a preference-driven society. Everything we do is based on our preferences. Businesses are successful because they find out the preferences of people. I prefer this kind of house over that kind of house. I prefer that kind of boyfriend over this kind of boyfriend, right? I prefer this kind of church because it has, you know, this for my kids where that church doesn't really have that. Or I prefer this church because, you know, the age of that pastor versus the age of that pastor. All these preferences get thrown around all the time. It's like, you know, is everything kind of the boxes? We're trying to tick them off one after another. If it meets all my preferences, well, then I'm in. And Jesus said, no. Cast all your preferences aside and make me your preference. Make me your focus. In fact, in order to get his point across, Jesus then began to tell two brief parables. But before I go into the first one, let me tell you a little story of my own. In Genesis, Michigan, where I grew up, uh, there was this guy who bought this piece of land. And he bought this land. He was going to build his house. Now, many times I'll ask people, say, yeah, we're building a new home. Well, they're not building their home. They're paying somebody else to build it, right? This guy was building his own house. That was his dream. That was his plan. And so he bought this piece of land, and it sat there for a couple different years. And then when I drove by it one day, suddenly, you know, it was being dug up, preparing the way for the foundation. So there was just mounds of dirt here and mounds of dirt over there. I thought, oh, cool. He's beginning. But then that land sat there for several years in that condition with just the mounds of dirt there. Well, then I rode by one day, and suddenly the foundation was getting laid. And I thought, okay, now he's going to get really serious. Now he's going to do this. And the foundation was poured, and it dried, and it sat there for another five years. It wasn't touched. And then one day I drove by, and now he's kind of beginning to frame the house. That took a while, and he's framing his house. Eventually, he got a kind of a roof put on it, but he didn't have any siding on the home, and that stayed that in that condition for a couple more years. Eventually, he sided the home. I thought, okay, now he's getting serious. He started to work on his front porch, which was never finished. And when I drove by it a couple years ago, that house had been completely torn down, never lived in. It had been replaced with storage units. He had intended to build his own house, but he had been taken off track, right? Other things became more important to him. He had other preferences that kept him from building the one thing he said was most important. And this is what Jesus had in mind with all, with all these would-be followers. Where is their devotion? And so we told this first parable. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. He wasn't able to finish because this person had other preferences. He preferred not to focus on the details. Preferred to focus on whatever was kind of interesting in that moment. But he preferred not to focus on what would get the job done. And in this, this is the lesson that Christ is trying to teach. Count the cost of completion before you choose discipleship. Before you dive in, count the cost of what it's going to take to cross the finish line, is what Jesus is saying. Because you see, there's many starters, but not nearly as many finishers. People would say, man, I want to start with God because if I can embrace Jesus, that means I go to heaven. Well, then I'm in and they start. But once they begin to learn what it takes to be a Christian, they don't finish. Many times, 
Many starters, not as many finishers. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you a finisher? In John's gospel, we hear this story. There's all these hundreds of people following Christ. And they're saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And then one day, Jesus teaches the cost of discipleship. And suddenly, they all look at each other and say, well, that's a hard saying. Who, who wants to do that? And they turned around, went home, never to follow him again. Many starters, not as many finishers. Our preferences get in the way, you see. And then in order to further his point, Jesus immediately then turned around and told yet a second parable, another short story. Or, he said, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. There's that phrase again, cannot be my disciples. And so here he's telling this story about this king who reigns over a kingdom. There's an army who's coming to oppose him. The army is twice the size of his. What's he going to do? Because it doesn't mean that merely because his army is smaller that he can't beat and defeat the larger one. We see this in history many times over. And so he has to weigh all the options. Take a look at every conceivable angle, and then he's got to make the call. He's got to make a decision. Is he going to fight? Is he going to try to work out a deal? What's he going to do? But the main point, really, of the story is this. If the king keeps weighing the options, if he keeps looking at, you know, what the possibilities might be, and he never dives fully into making a call, eventually his decision will be made for him. The enemy will already be at his gate, and all the options are over. Life is done. And to this, Jesus is saying, count the cost of an action before you embrace discipleship. Count the cost of an action before you embrace discipleship, because this parable warns against our preference many times for procrastination. I sat with a a guy just three weeks ago. He asked me to meet with him, a guy in his early 20s. And as I met with him, it was very, very clear that, that he hadn't thought through the various details, the most important details of his life. Because he's young. He's got forever in front of him. Why, why make these important decisions now? And the reality, friends, is this, that many people would prefer never having to make the hard choice at all. And yet the reality is that we may die before we ever take that first step towards Christ And the reality is this as well. Not to decide to follow Jesus is to make a decision against yourself. The ultimate decision against yourself. Because if you don't follow Jesus, friends, you're going to miss out on fully making an impact in this life. Only to discover the full impact of an eternal life without Christ. Before this event in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. So in whatever way, we're a crowd here gathered. Have you looked at all the options? Have you truly made a decision, Jesus is saying, and have you really chosen to follow him? Or are you kind of playing the edges a little bit? Walking the fence a bit, still kind of waiting a bit. He's saying, don't procrastinate. You might be young. You might think you've got 50 years in front of you, but you might not. 
And if you don't make that choice, decide to follow, repent, turn of your sins and follow Christ, you may never get that choice at all. And so Jesus teaches us a couple lessons. Discipleship impacts my personal relationships and discipleship impacts my personal preferences. And this leads to the third lesson, the outcome, if you will. And it's found in verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. The third lesson is this. Discipleship impacts my personal resources. It impacts my personal resources. You think, Phil, what does salt have to do with my personal resources? I don't get it. Hold on for just a moment. We'll get there. Before the time of Christ, think about this. Before Christ showed up, salt was incredibly valuable. In fact, people referred to it as white gold. White gold. Soldiers would receive their payment in salt. And when a negotiation had to happen, covenants were made based on salt. Have you ever heard of such thing as a salt agreement before? Because it was costly, but you both knew because you were bringing the salt, it really meant something. Now at the time of Christ, salt was used for other things. It was used for, you know, to preserve the food. It was used to season a meal, if you would. It was used to fertilize, really, your plants or your soil. It was also used to fight against any sense of decay. 2,000 years later, if you were to ask a chemist... And say, okay, Christ talked about salt losing its saltiness, becoming saltless salt, if you will, the salt without taste. Is that possible? Well, based on the salt we have today, a chemist will tell you it, it's, it's almost virtually impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. So what was Christ saying here? What was he getting at? Well, based on history and based on the culture of Christ's time, there's... More likely two different options here. I'm going to let you decide which option you think applies here, what Christ is referring to. Because no matter what option you pick, it's going to lead to the same result. It really will. You're going to see this in just a moment. The first option is this. that I even read about this, the chemist talking about this, that in ancient Palestine, when Jesus lived, you know, the people of the lower class would try to find salt wherever they could get it. And there was kind of low-class salt, salt that wasn't really high quality that they find in salt marshes and in rock salt. And they would use this salt, and it would season the meal, for example. But if that salt was exposed to water, if rain touched it, any kind of water touched that salt, the sodium chloride would be leached away from that salt, making that salt to look like salt, but there wouldn't be any taste any longer. It was watered down, if you will. And if this is Christ's lesson, he's saying, you know what? You are the salt of the world. If you're my follower, you're the salt of of the world. And if you don't stay devoted to me, if you allow your faith to be watered down by mixing with others who aren't devoted to me, not loving me, actually try to take you off track, well, then your watered down faith is going to lead you to a Christianity that does not have any taste, and you're going to be saltless salt. Not fit for the soil, not even fit for the manure pile. It just needs to get thrown out. That's significant, friends. The second possibility is this. That back in those days, salt equaled loyalty. 
Think about that. Salt equaled loyalty. And so if you had a good friend, you would speak about this, that we had salt between us, loyalty between us. But that loyalty could be broken. In fact, I shared a couple years ago that if you look at that famous painting, you know, The Last Supper, you look at that painting and you find where Judas is stationed around the table. In front of him, you'll find a little container that has been spilled over. That's a salt container. And the salt had been spilled. And that meant that the loyalty had been broken. And you cannot trust that person. In fact, just after the last service, I had this guy come up to me. He goes, I finally get it. He's like 45, 50 years old. He goes, I'm from Bethlehem, five miles outside of Bethlehem. And he says, there was a story as I grew up there about these two families that fought each other, kept fighting with each other. And they decided to finally, you know, make ends with each other, have peace with each other. And so they met and one family made a meal for the other. But as soon as they sat down to eat the meal, he said, and the story was shared all over, as soon as they tasted the food, the one family got up and left because they knew they could not trust the other family because the food didn't have any salt in it. There's no loyalty. And so if this is what Christ had in mind, he's saying, if he become unfaithful to me and spill the salt, spill the loyalty, you break that between us, well, then you become saltless salt. In fact, you know what he's saying here because in our own culture, you may have heard this phrase that says, you know what, he's not worth his salt. That person's not worth their salt, which means you can't trust them. They're not loyal. See, Jesus said that as Christians, we are to be the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. Basically, we are to be change agents, friends, that help to preserve Christ's message and help to preserve his mission. And the essence of our saltiness, what gives us taste, is our discipleship, our passion for Jesus Christ, and the full utilization of all of our resources, of our devotion, of our loyalty, our talents, our skills. We bring it all, and we represent Christ to this world. But if, due to our own decisions, we allow our faith to be watered down because we're trying to fit in with the world around us, if we become disloyal to Jesus and we spill the salt, we become saltless salt. Unfit for the soil, unfit for the manure pile. Jesus says it just merely needs to be thrown out. And what Jesus is saying is this, becoming like Jesus requires Everything, all of our resources. It impacts your relationships, your preferences, and your resources. So we're a crowd gathered here today. Jesus was traveling with the crowd that day. And the heart of the question he had was this, and it's the same question for all of us here today, including myself. Are you part of the crowd, or are you part of the committed it's a great question, but Jesus would also say, based on that parable, you only got so much time to make the choice. So stop walking the fence. Stop playing the edges. And make a choice where you're all in. Because while there are many starters, there's not as many finishers. And Christ wants you to be a finisher. Somebody who's fully devoted. In fact, in order to make sure the crowd... Really took this in. He ended this whole, this whole series of, of stories by saying this. Whoever has ears to hear, 
let them hear. Do you have ears to hear this morning? We just close your eyes before we go into this song. And I just want to give you some time alone with God right now. Just you and him. Just you and Jesus. And be honest with him and say, Jesus, will you forgive me? I think there's other preferences I've had that have taken a precedent over you. Name them. Ask forgiveness. Say, Jesus, you know, I've been disloyal to you. I really have. I've been treating you like an add-on to my life rather than the center of my life. Forgive me. Perhaps pray a prayer that says, Jesus, forgive me. I want to follow you. And I want you to be my everything. Then when it comes to all the options in this world that many people find to be just really, really awesome, you'd say, you know what? You can have all this world because Christ is enough for me. He is enough for me. I don't need all that other stuff. I merely need Him. And this is what a disciple of Jesus Christ 